Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Daniel Sherman, author of French Primitivism and the Ends of Empire, 1945 to 1975. The book was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2011. Hi there, Dan. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I wonder if you could get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in working on France. Well, I'm a historian uh, currently teaching in the art history program at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And like I think many authors you've talked to, uh, in this series, I, I can trace my interest in France um, to two things, um, an early childhood or childhood experiences uh, of the country and uh, a great college teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother is a an art historian, uh, a, medie- a medievalist, and um, I was four when she went with the whole family to uh, France to do research on her dissertation on uh, uh, images of a 14th century French king. Um, So I had the uh, great privilege um, of visiting France several times as a a child, as a teenager, and uh, to make friends there whom I've kept for for decades. But uh, so, in, in fact, the the family whose pension we stayed in um, when I was four, uh, I'm we're, we're still in touch with. It was a large family, which now extends to uh, three generations, I think. And um, these are these are people I still see when I'm when I'm in France. And um, so it, it, I've, I've always felt a little as though I have a, a French family. But when I started college. I thought that I was going to become a historian of Britain, Mm. and I had the great good fortune um, in my second year of college uh, of taking a a really fascinating, powerful, dense course on political ideas and society, colon, modern France. Mm. And um, I took that course, and I was... I was hooked. The instructor um, is somebody who is well known to historians of France, but also in other domains because he's a well-known scholar of international relations, Stanley Hoffman. Um, and uh, he agreed to direct my senior thesis, at, uh, my, my undergraduate senior thesis, for which I got a research grant between my uh, junior and senior years of college. Um, and although the research didn't, in, in retrospect, um, you know, the, the first research project is always a little dicey. I was, <laughs> I was, you know, I was 20. It was, uh, and I was 
I was working on I was working on the interwar period, and at that point in France, uh, archivally speaking, it was really too soon. So, you know, the thesis it was a perfectly respectable undergraduate thesis, but I did catch the archival bug, the, the the research bug, and I remember sitting on the plane in Paris on 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 the way back to uh, the States for my my senior year, thinking. This is this is how I want to come back to France. I don't want to come back as a tourist. I want to, you know, this was really with all of its frustrations and and annoyances and um, uh, unexpected, not always pleasant surprises in the archives. You know, this is this is what I want to do. This is the kind of connection to France that I want to have and. Um, I'm. I feel uh, extraordinarily lucky that I have been able to maintain that kind of connection to France in in the years since. Dan, you've written a number. Of, you've written and edited a number of books dealing with art and aesthetics, museums, memory, and commemoration in France. And I'm wondering how you think about this project on on French primitivism. And we'll get into you know what that means and 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 the details of the book in in a few moments. But I'm just wondering about the relationship of this work to your broader body of work? Well, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk about that, because I think that, you know, I've had the experience of reading several books by, um, by other scholars, and noticing strands in them that, that seem consistent, that seem to indicate some kind of persistent interest. And when I've had the opportunity to mention it to those scholars, there's one I can think of in particular, they confessed total, I mean, they, did, they didn't deny it, but <laughs> they weren't, they did, they, 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 these were things that they hadn't noticed. Um, I guess a, a simpler way of putting this is that I I see every project that I undertake as distinct, um, and I, I I start with different with different problematics and and different um, different questions and and different theoretical frameworks, not necessarily explicitly because, but because it really depends on what I've been reading, what I've been thinking about, what I've been talking to other scholars about. So my second book, which came out in 1999 on war memorials and commemoration uh, of the First World War in France, I'd been thinking uh, a lot about gender. And that's uh, really uh, an important orienting framework for that book. Um, when I started working on this project, I'd been thinking a lot about and reading a lot about colonialism. So that set the framework for for this book. That said, um, you're certainly right that there are, I, I consider myself a cultural historian, and I think that cultural you can do cultural history with almost any materials, Um I, I think you know you can you can write a you can do a, a cultural history of I don't know rural electrification, mm-hmm. um, uh, but it's also true that my materials 
have always been somewhere in the visual sphere, in the the realm of visual culture, and also, as often as not, somewhere close to the what we think of as as high culture as art uh, and and that i think is has to do with my background and my interests and also frankly the fact that you know once you start once you've published something in one area, people keep asking you to <laughs> publish, uh, you know, to, to people expect you always expect me to have things to say about museums and and memorials. And so and I usually do, <laughs> but it's certainly a domain in which I feel uh, at home. So in the book's introduction, Dan, you offer readers a kind of overview of primitivism and its treatment as an object of study by previous scholars. So perhaps we could start with this I mean, I'm not going to ask you to give me a definition of primitivism, because I think that's part of the point of the book is to interrogate that. But could you say a little bit about the field of definitions as 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 it existed as you began this work um, leading up to your discussion of French primitivism after 1945? Is there a way that we could start with something like what is primitivism? What are some of the key moments and issues in its history in France and maybe even beyond? Well, the thing about primitivism is that uh, even more than most cognate terms, it's very slippery. And, uh, you know, the, the term, the related term with which most people, I think, are familiar is Orientalism. Um, and uh, I, I talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that in the in, in the introduction. But I think it's pretty firmly ingrained in people's mind, certainly uh, among scholars across the humanities and social sciences, that Orientalism uh, describes the way that people from the West, people who are not from what they define or understand as the Orient, think about um, others think about people they they consider Orientals, and of course, in the first instance, um, the the privileged objects are from the Middle East and the Levant, um, not from um, the the Far East, from from um, from East Asia. But with primitivism, there's a law, and, and so we don't think of Orientalism as a some kind of complex, you know, I don't want to say disease, but something that affects Oriental people. Mm-hmm. Whereas with primitivism, th- there was long uh, a tendency to think of primitivism as something characteristic of people we understood as primitive, mm-hmm. right? So I'm at pains in the book to to make clear and and. Just to parenthetically, there's historians have talked about the the way primitivism is occasionally used as a clinical term. I mean, not recently, but as recently as, say, the 1950s mm-hmm. um, in uh, colonial medicine uh, as applied to people in, say, North Africa. Uh, so it, it was a considered a kind of psychological malady that could be diagnosed if not treated but i'm what i'm interested in is primitivism as a set of ideas uh that western people that 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 people who consider themselves civilized use to understand other 
kinds of people, people in other places, typically places colonized, explored and colonized by um, European, by Europeans and other Westerners. Um, and uh, it's a, globally speaking, it's a tendency to see in the uncivilized, and of course, uh, you know, this is a podcast, uh, but uh, I'm I'm making little scare quote <laughs> motions with my with my fingers at all of these terms, but but it's necessary to use them in order to critique them. Ways that the civilized think about people in uh, places they view as uncivilized, as um, untouched by civilization. And the peculiar thing about primitivism, and really my starting point, is that it tends to be a uh, romanticizing um, set of ideas that takes off from, say, from, from hierarchical, hierarchical thinking about races, certainly, but that tends to turn um, civilization against itself. So a typical um, primitivist idea is that those who have not been affected or contaminated by modernity, by all of the things that the West takes pride in, uh, have something to teach those of us who have been uh, affected by modernity, that there's something more authentic, more unspoiled uh, about their their lives, that uh, they are in closer touch with nature and with their um, sort of inner selves, and that if we can, uh, we modern modern or modernized Westerners can uh, come into contact with that in some way, uh, it will be beneficial to us. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the, classic, the, the classic manifestation of this has been in uh, the arts, in the visual arts, um, not just in France, although uh, France is a, um, certainly one of the, its privileged starting points. Uh, so when uh, Paul Gauguin, say, um, in the uh, 1890s goes to French Polynesia in search of inspiration, in search of um, a simpler way of life, in search of something pure and raw, and then uh, incorporates it, what he finds or what he thinks he finds, um, into his art. Uh, when 10 years later, Picasso does the same thing with African masks, um, uh, when the German expressionists do that, that is... Um, that is the form of primitivism that is best known mm -hmm. um, in cultural history and is, is certainly very familiar in, in art history. But I wanted to take that concept and see if it could be applied more broadly, not just to um, the production of high art, but to society at large. It's one of the really fascinating things about the book that you do, in fact, engage with high art, but then extend that out to, to think about other domains. And you offer the book down as an intervention in at least two major areas of discussion and debate when it comes to the study of France. So the first is that interweaving of French and imperial history, as you say. And then the second is the history of this period, the 
Trente Glorieuse, the 30 Glorious Years from 1945 to 1975. So I'm wondering if you could say something about how the book in sort of broad terms contributes to these two areas of scholarly focus and interest. Well, I think that um, the two are very much connected and um, because the, the the way that I wanted to inflect the history of the Trente Glorieuse uh, was by introducing both unease about the modernization that's incarnated in the phrase uh, the 30 glorious years, which was invented, um, by the way, by an economist. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's really about it's really about boom. It's really about the, the you know, the, the, the transformation of France into a, a modern economic power. Um, but uh the, the the I also wanted to bring into it so the, the the idea of the 30 glorious years is that despite all of the upheaval, despite the loss of empire, um, despite the catastrophe of the um, Algerian war and the regime change uh, that it brings about in the metropole, uh, the creation of the Fifth Republic and then its its, uh, kind of um, re or enhanced, intensified presidentialization in 1962, um, that uh, despite all of that, the what one wants to um, retain, as the French would say, from this period, is the continuities, the the economic expansion, the demographic expansion, um, state planning that promotes. Uh, expansion that begins in the Fourth Republic and uh, continues into the technocratic Fifth Republic. Um, you know things that that continue until the oil shock of the mid seventies shakes up the entire global economy. And you know what, what what I was trying to do, what a lot of historians have been trying to do, is is to say, well, you know, no, you can't. Uh, I mean, you, you don't have to tell. The, the the story of the Fourth Republic and the first 15 years of, of the Fifth Republic, either as one of um, kind of constant or con- continual political crisis and, and renewal, or as one of steady economic expansion, that by paying attention to the um, – importance of all kinds of relations with uh, overseas France and um, well the what, what had been overseas France and then it's what became the former uh, empire its peoples uh, its cultures uh, that one can tell a more complex and more subtle story of, of France as a as a as a as a country as a society uh, entangled in uh, larger um, colonial and post-colonial relations you know you talked about the fact that primitivism is a sort of broad uh, conceptual term and movement in art beyond France um, but the the book is focused on French primitivism so what makes French primitivism? French. Well, I think that the French have a somewhat um, greater set of illusions, um, to put it to put it baldly, uh, about their 
um, relationship to other parts of the world and their ability to get into the mindset, um, get get inside the heads uh, of uh, people who had been their colonial subjects. I, I'm, you know, I imagine that there are historians of the British Empire out there um, who would contradict me on this, and I, I don't pretend to be an expert on on any other empire. But I think that French primitivism is fed by this sense of French of of, Fran, of French universalism of France as incorporating certain universal values um, including a form of humanism that over and above the contradictions and the paradoxes and and the the cruelties and injustices of uh, any colonial system uh, they believe somehow redeems um, the failures and and the the crises of the the, the last years of their their imperial rule uh, or of of their large-scale uh, empire and let's not forget that overseas that there is still an overseas France, um, which uh, territories uh, in um, the Antilles, um, in the Pacific, uh, in the Indian, in the Indian Ocean, um, that actually continued to send elected representatives to the French Parliament. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that sense that um, somehow, uh, to paraphrase General de Gaulle's famous speech in in Algiers in June of 1958, that the French have understood their their colonial subjects, which persists even after um, their colonial subjects have made clear that they do not wish to be understood <laughs> um, any further within the the, the framework of of colonialism um, is a is a pretty powerful drive for for French primitivism. So in the second chapter of the book, Dan, you talk about the Musée des Arts et Traditions Populaires that was originally uh, created in 1937. And you give right. us a kind of overview of the history of the museum. And in specifically in the period that, that the book focuses on, you, you look at the history of the museum in relationship to this history of French ethnology and a, and a kind of back and forth between colonial and metropolitan contexts and missions. And I wonder if you could uh, just sort of give us a sense of the significance of that museum and its development in this period and, and this idea of the colonial inheritance of French ethnology and ethnography. Yeah, well, what what fascinated me about um, the um, ATP, as it's known for Art Tradition Populaire, um, is that um, the the methods that it used for gathering uh, materials, for collecting uh, objects, but also for its larger scholarly and scientific mission, uh, which was to record the traditional uh, or the customs of and practices of traditional French society before they rural French society. It's important to mm-hmm. specify that um, before they disappeared, that the, those methods were borrowed very directly from um, the the methods being worked out at the same time uh, in 
uh, the French colonies. And there is a direct connection between the founding director of the, this museum, the, the Musée des Arts et Traditions Populaires, uh, a man called Georges-Henri Rivière, and the people uh, who were building um, French ethnology as a discipline, uh, what, what we would call cultural, cultural anthropology. Um, and the, the, for a very long time, not just in France, but um, throughout the developed West, uh, anthropology was understood to be a field that studied um, traditional societies, sometimes the word primitive was thrown in, whether it was in the early days of anthropology in the United States, uh, uh, American Indians um, in the Southwest, uh, or uh, whether it was tribes, uh, Amazonian tribes uh, or uh, African peoples, the more remote, the less contaminated by Western culture, the better. But what interested me is that the methods of fieldwork, the kinds of recording, the the instructions for how to approach people and how to get them to confide in you and, you know, how to eventually get them to give you stuff mm-hmm. for your museum um, were basically taken pretty much wholesale from the kinds of guides and manuals that were used for you know dealing with the, the peoples I just mentioned in in Africa, in Oceania, in uh, in South America, and applied to people in quote unquote remote areas of France, the Massif Central, the Auvergne, uh, farthest reaches of Brittany, um, the mountainous regions of the Southwest, and and so on. So. Uh, this is a, a kind of direct application of primitivism to people who are the fellow citizens of the uh, ethnographers carrying out the, the investigation. And I, I, I wanted to explore um, that kind of internal othering, the particular course it takes um, in the 50s and 60s, um, which is um, one of I would say um, increasingly, increasingly, can we think of nostalgia as as mingled with desperation? Um, <laughs> because it's, you know, what they're looking for, these, these traditional rural folkways are, you know, they're always disappearing. They're always gone. And uh, they're, they're always, they're always just kind of, you know, about to fade out of view. And the, the, the idea that we need kind of scientific techniques, we need uh, tape recorders, we need projection equipment, I mean, we need, we need recording equipment, we need um, lots and lots of uh, ethnographers with notebooks making lists, you know, to preserve uh, what is regarded as kind of the core of French civilization. Um, it's one of the paradoxes at, at the heart of primitivism that, that I, I found particularly 
um, rewarding to explore. Well, and if this first chapter, um, you know, focuses in, in some ways on these sort of concepts and practices of, of uh, I don't know, a kind of domestic ethnographic uh, work, the, the third chapter in the book really focuses on this placement of artifacts, you know, once once you have the staff. But you, you talk about the placement of artifacts in, well, at least one perhaps less expected context, looking at the Musée des Arts Africains et Océaniens, um, but also looking at home decorating magazine spreads right. um, and kind of putting those things together as places where um, artifacts uh, are, are relocated and presented. And, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about how that works. Well, um, I was in this chapter, I was really guided by Jan Scott's work on on fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say, I guess I should say uh her initial work on on fantasy, the article Fantasy Echo, because this was done before the recent book on on fantasy as a historiographical um, concept. Um, But fantasy as a um, construct that uh, resolves conflict and uh, that that presents a kind of a, a picture of things in conflict that uh, from which the conflict is removed and there's a kind of seamless uh, whole and the uh, decorating magazines which well actually these are art magazines for the most part with decorating features in them mm-hmm. which is interesting in itself. I mean, I, I when I started going through these magazines, I was not looking for the, the pieces on decorating. They just kind of popped out, uh, shall we say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, I realized that um, and I, I was particularly what particularly drew me in was a piece by a then quite young French designer, um, called Andre Putman, who died a year or so, just died a year or so ago, and who I had the chance to interview a couple of times, um, in which the he, uh, decorating style that she was proposing, which merged the you know very modern furniture by um, say Knoll, um, the 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 Knoll firm, and artifacts from primitive or uh, let's just say early cultures, early Christian, Coptic, um, Iberian, um, whatever. Um, but she called this style association um you know which is a, a kind of a, a red flag for for french historians because it's mm-hmm. one of the the key words of um uh of, of french colonial doctrine right um so what what interested me about this was the way these these decorating these these images sort of seamlessly associated the the culture of the West um, of the modern West and culture then and artifacts of what were then considered to be more more primitive peoples and that this was happening in uh, you know at the the you know the height of the Algerian War. Um, well, mm-hmm. perhaps not the height. The the, the last years of the, the Algerian War, 1960, 61, 62, when uh, a lot of the violence was 
uh, being brought home. So it seemed to me to, to um, involve, a, you know, at the very least, enormous powers of concentration. <laughs> um, and let's let's go, you know, or let's say also denial um, to be thinking that you could reconcile that, you know, you could associate these various styles in this seamless way in your living room. And it's and um, the, there is a kind of instant gratification about it that um, and, and, you know, it was not just in this in these features um, by by Andre Putman in the magazine Lay. Um, or I, which is a you know a, a, an art magazine that that still exists, but the the style then spread um, to other art magazines and to you know more middle brow magazines um, uh, like the French version of House and Garden, where it was you know it called the the kind of the trend of the moment and. It seemed to me what it what what was the the what was going on was it was providing the kind of instant gratification that was much more difficult to achieve in the kind of cumbersome structure of a museum um, because this the the museum that that you mentioned and that I discuss in the second part of, of chapter three, the um, Museum of African and Oceanic Art um, was created basically. Um, out of nothing in 1960 to occupy the space formally well, that was built to house a museum of French colonialism, basically, mm -hmm. a French colonial museum. And it took, and really there was no model at the time for uh, a museum of, the, you know, what people thought of as primitive art. Um the kind of parallel American example was later, um, the Museum of Primitive Art in New York, which is uh, was later folded into the, the Metropolitan Museum as the Michael C. Rockefeller wing. Uh, and the, um, the, the Belgian cognate, the, the, um, the museum, what is now called the, the, the Congo Museum um, in Tervoren outside of Brussels mm -hmm. was not exactly a model either because the whole point of this museum was to um, uh, as uh, the Minister of Culture um, uh, Andre Malraux famously said in a speech in Niamé um, forget colonialism mm -hmm. get past colonialism well it took a while to do that I mean the museum really didn't and there was criticism of this in the press they were they had to basically acquire a whole collection. They had to figure out how to install it artistically. Um, you know, they had to uh, attend to this, you know, not very old, but already by 1960, I mean, it was built um, for the 1931 Colonial Exposition. And already by the 60s, it was leaky and crumbling. And so it was, it took over a decade for them to put together a, um, you know, anything approaching a, a full collection. But what these two things have in common for me, the, 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 the fashion magazines or the, the, the decorating uh, features in, in the art magazines and the museum is that they both use aesthetics as a way of masking politics. And I think from their own point of view, to go back to what I was saying earlier about the, the about universalism and common humanity, to overcome, to, to transcend uh, the legacy 
legitimacy of political division on the basis of a kind of common aesthetic understanding. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be, uh, not just in this chapter, although certainly in in, in a more intense way in this chapter, this kind of tension between these strategies and and practices of collection and display, you know, how objects are acquired and then um, presented and and represented, but then also this this other story of of concealment um, and masking that comes up again and again with respect to the colonial empire. In the fourth chapter, Dan, you talk about, a number of artists talk about Jean Dubuffet, who's perhaps better known than the other artists that you um, spend a lot of time on in in the book, Gaston Chessac, um, as, as these totemic artists that also uh, engage with and become central in the ways that people think about primitivism in France in this period. And I'd just like to ask you to say a little bit more, especially about Chessac, you know, who was he and um, why is his work so significant in the arguments that you're making here in the book? So Chessac was a largely, but not entirely, and that's important, uh, self-taught artist, born in 1910, who spent most of his mature career as a uh, living in the the wilds of the Vendée, where his wife was a schoolteacher. He came into the orbit of Jean Dubuffet in the late 40s, at the time that Dubuffet was elaborating his idea of what he called Art Brut, which um, we now know, or which we now translate by the fairly widespread term outsider art. And, but it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that the first um, English language book on outsider art um, by Roger Cardinal was a book very much about Dubuffet's, or inspired by Dubuffet's efforts, which were not the first, but which were the first kind of organized efforts to collect and preserve uh, work by self-taught artists as its own category, as a category challenging the norms and customs and and hierarchies of the art world. Um, And that that, that book by Roger Cardinal, which came out in the early 70s, the the term outsider art was one that he he worked out in consultation with Dubuffet. So, you know, it's a term that, you know, is very widespread in the the art world uh, now and is quite familiar, but it, you, one, one can trace it back to um, this this undertaking by, by Dubuffet. Now, Chesak, um, the interested me um, from fairly early on. I mean, when I started the project, I thought I was just going to um, do a chapter on Arbrut as uh, another form of kind of internal primitivism. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Shisak interested me because very early in their relationship, which remained friendly until uh, Shisak's death at, at the early age of uh, fairly early age of 54 mm-hmm. um, in 1964, um, but very fairly early in their relationship, Dubuffet basically decided that Shesak knew too much, <laughs> um, that he was not 
brute enough that he was not really an outsider because he was in contact with uh, intellectuals like Jean Paulon and Michel Ragon because he showed his work uh, at sort of at, at salons of um, you know that, that were open to I mean they, they were fairly generally open but they were there were places where you saw uh, established work uh, so he was uh, although Dubuffet remained interested in him and and continued to acquire some of his, his work, he was put outside the category of the outsider. And yet, um, throughout his career, he tended to be treated as somehow primitive. And this is where the kind of confusion between um, the, you know, the different possible senses of primitive primitivism um, is most interesting or, or most acute. So what what I ended up concluding about Chisok, uh, on the basis of evidence that might be more convincing to art historians than to historians, but um, you know nobody's complained about this too much in in the in in the reviews, um, in that um, Chisok had really you know was himself a primitivist that. Um, he had absorbed uh, in the the visual and intellectual culture of his time because he was very well read um, and very very curious. Colonialism, primitivism as a, as a structure of consciousness. So that when he um, car when he painted, you know, a sort of rough but always kind of amiable, um, smiling figures on stumps of wood uh, and called them totems. It wasn't because, you know, he was um, channeling ideas he had uh, learned and read about, um, uh, about the way um, so-called primitive peoples uh, made art. And, you know, in his extraordinarily abundant um, and, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm sure I've, um, you know, it's cost me a couple of years of my vision, um, barely legible correspondence. And, you know, there, there are, you know, the, there are references to, um, you know, one of the iconic sort of sets of images of commodity racism, that is the Banania ads. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, he was doing what artists going back to, to, to Gauguin and um, Picasso and Clay and others had, had done. He was, um, you know, trying to approach some kind of purity of expression or, or creativity through um, ideas of, you know, simple, often simplistic uh, that he had, that he had gathered about um primitive societies, but he was treated by the critics as himself a primitive. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, not so much as as a, you know, mature conscious artist um, making, you know, doing these things 
um, out of choice. But as somebody who, and this is this is one of the uh, the critical texts that that I talk about and analyze, who was working through his own compulsions, who like who could not help himself, mm. and this was something that I, I I I found actually when I first came across it quite shocking. Uh, you know, even in people who this this was in a well, I'm, uh, I, I can't the the there there were a number of texts like this, but certainly one in the the the, the first big retrospective of his work um, in 1972 at, at the Musée National d'Art Moderne, uh, what's now at the Pompidou Center. It's was This was before uh, the Pompidou Center was finished, so it was still in the Palais de Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, you know, he was making art like this because he was kind of psychologically distressed, and this was a way of, of working it out for him, working out, you know, some... So, almost as though he didn't know what he was doing. And there were references even to, I mean, references to the, you know, the dark night and primordial dawns and all this kind of thing, which, you know, you, you just have to read some of his 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 texts um, to understand this is really quite a, Quite a sophisticated, um, quite an intelligent man who admittedly cultivated as part of his production, I would say, a certain kind of rustic persona, mm-hmm. um, but, um, uh, you know, from which he got good publicity. So this was really, a, and, and I remember the, the first time I gave a talk about this um, before a very, you know, before a, before an academic audience, a friend um, said to me, you know, it was only, it was only really about halfway through your lecture that I realized you were making a distinction between primitive and primitivist. And uh, I said, well, I'm glad you got it. <laughs> it's, I'm glad it, you know, glad it was halfway and not, you know, the end of the whole thing. Well, and those contradictions are really apparent in your discussion of, of Shitsak and, and how he's, you know, received uh, by critics and, and, and by his peers, I guess, uh, during this, this, this period. That mm-hmm. sort of idea that primitivism, that there's a double bind and that there are these contradictions and this tension that really runs throughout the book uh, between these ideas of modernity and tradition also run throughout the, the last chapter before the epilogue, uh, Trouble in Paradise, where you actually take us to uh, French Polynesia and look at these questions of tourism and the myth of preservation. And um, I'm just wondering about uh, the argument that you're making here, uh, just quoting you here, in this special context of an enduring rather than terminal uh, colonialism, the context of French Polynesia. Well, that chapter came about in a in a funny way. I mean, I mean, I think that's one of the rewarding things about research that it um, takes you in directions you don't normally expect. But when I was laying out this project, uh, that was going to be a chapter about. Uh, the, about Club Med, which does kind of make a brief appearance, uh, you know, which is you know, of which the advertising slogan for for a long time, um, as you may remember, uh, was um, 
uh, antidote to civilization. Hmm. Um, and uh, there was an article that Alan Furlow published in French Historical Studies about Club Med scholars who were certainly interested in it. Um, I wasn't, you know, the, the first to think that it was worth exploring further. And I, I did spend some time with their newsletter, Le Trident, Le Trident, mm-hmm. um, but found that it was virtually impossible to gain access to the corporate archives that that I would have that I would have needed. Um, and I was also not the first to find to encounter that roadblock. So I was trying to find more information about the early Club Med village in Tahiti in French Polynesia. And you know, this is you know this is in the fifties before the dawn of jet travel. So, you know, Club Med was started as a, you know, as a, as a way of offering sort of authentic primal pleasures, shall we say, to the European middle class at an affordable price. Um, and, you know, it would be, a, you know, a week on the, in, in the Canary Islands or uh, a week on, you know, again, in the 50s on one of the less um, traveled parts of the, the Côte d'Azur, that, that kind of thing, or weeks, you know, in the ski resort, um, well, not a resort. Uh, in in the winter, and so the you know, but they had this village in Tahiti, and so normally you know it was like a two week passing package, whereas for the village in Tahiti it took it was three months because it took a month to get there by boat, and you spent a month there, and then it took another month to get back, and of course most of it was mostly kind of symbolic. Um, very few people could afford to take advantage of this, but it was. Was, you know, was you know um, written up a lot in Le Trident and celebrated as kind of the wellspring of the inspiration for the Club Med. So I was looking in the archives of um, the uh, overseas the, the overseas ministry um, for um, material on tourist development, hoping that I would find more information about this village in Tahiti, and I didn't find much, but I found copious information about tourism as a way of developing French Polynesia um, while also preserving its authentic, that is to say, primitive culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 50s, uh, well, you know, in, in, in the post-war, there was a very serious uh, autonomous Movement and a uh, with a uh, a leader who uh, had a lot of had a, had a quite large following throughout uh, Polynesia, throughout the various archipelagos, um, and uh, who the um, the the new Gaullist regime you know regarded as a serious threat, mm-hmm. and so they were looking for ways to provide a better livelihood for the. Uh, Polynesians um, who were without kind of completely spoiling what um, the French going back to Gauguin, who who must be noted, was actually disappointed by um, the the capital of of, um, the territory, Papeti, what what they had regarded as its kind of fundamental primitive character. So there were a lot of schemes for tourist development and, uh, you know, what they, but they quickly came up against um, the, uh, what, what became the primary strategic interest of Polynesia 
after the French withdrawal from retreat from Algeria, which was um, using one of the more uh, remote archipelagos, um, of course, it's all relative, as a testing ground for nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And so what the French had envisioned as a kind of gradual uh, modernization uh, that uh, you know, uh, on, on th that would be spurred by tourist development, by you know, carefully managed uh, infrastructure and development, hotel building, various other kind of what, what we would, various other kinds of employment opportunities in the larger tourist sector, actually became in the mid '60s uh, a very rapid, almost brutal uh, modernization as uh, the French built uh, on Tahiti itself, which is considerable distance from the, the actual testing grounds. But on Tahiti, uh, they built the, uh, the sort of the command center, the, the base mm -hmm. for the, the support staff, um, both for the military and for the French Atomic Energy uh, Commission that, that was um, supervising the, the tests. And this didn't stop them from wanting to, you know, develop tourism, especially uh, after the first mor the first moratorium on testing um, in the late 70s. But it becomes this contradiction um, mm -hmm. paradox within the, the whole enterprise and, and the governance of, of Polynesia. And I, I guess what struck me and what I tried to explore is um, how you can at the same time um, be using this territory and its people in in this very brutal way mm -hmm. um, uh, and at the same time believe that it's possible to preserve something primitive in it. And to promote that as a as a tourist destination, and to promote that as a tourist destination, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the you know throughout the the five chapters of the book, you kind of pursue those contradictions and tensions um, in in the notion of the primitive and, and, and primitivism. I was really struck, uh, Dan, by the, the epilogue. I mean, in the introduction to the book, you talk about, uh, you know, one of the kind of reasons to write the book, that there's this persistent and unselfconscious, and I'm quoting here, persistent and unselfconscious primitivism in France that lasts into the, the 21st century long after it has come under challenge elsewhere. And your epilogue begins with this question, why has primitivism remained a live force in French culture? And, and I wonder about that as how you see the book as a contribution to, to on contemporary and ongoing um, issues in French culture, how you kind of answer that question. Why, why is that the case that, that in France, this remains such a live force and how you, you address that in the epilogue and how you see it, the book as a contribution to that, to that conversation. Well, um, I think that the, the, um, primary instance of this, um, and it's one of the four little subsections of the, the epilogue, but probably the, the, the longest, um, is the Musée du Quai Branly, mm -hmm. um, the museum that takes over the collections of the um, African and Oceanic Art Museum, uh, as well as the ethnographic collections of the Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Man, um, in a new, very expansive and very expensive structure uh, built just um, east of the Eiffel Tower um, that opened in 2006. Mm -hmm. 
And um, this very much incarnates a persistent strand in in French diplomacy, um, but also in um, in French self-understanding, uh, in this case, central to Jacques Chirac's view of his legacy or, or the, the kind of legacy he wanted to promote, which is, you know, the, the, the idea of France as champion of um, the third world, of, of people who had been, uh, and he, he famously, and there's this whole litany of, um, and I'm just looking in the book for the some of the adjectives, uh, people who had been uh, scorned, despised, brutalized, and, um, and left out of the um, discourses of civilization. So, um, you know, the idea that by promoting African um, oceanic um, Native American art as uh, as equal to saying that there is no hierarchy in culture. You were France is demonstrating its open mindedness, its open mindedness, and its continued its continued uh, uniqueness in the community of nations, and certainly um, by implication in in comparison to. Um, to the U.S., the 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 one word that he that Chirac did not use in his speech at the to describe these peoples um, that he did not use in, that he, in his oh yes here we go brutalized exterminated humiliated and scorned that's just um, there, there's an ellipsis in there but the, the this is at the dedication uh, the opening of the museum in 2006 but the one word he doesn't use is colonized mm-hmm. so again um there's there's and i think that in the you know this then this kind of universalism then becomes a way of not having to say you're sorry for either for colonialism, and this is just a year and a half or so after the notorious and fortunately short-lived law that, that uh, requiring um, the French public school curriculum to teach the positive effects of French mm-hmm. colonialism. But it's also just a few months after the six, seven, eight months after the um, the, the riots in the, the suburbs of Paris and other major cities uh, that reflect the ongoing tensions between European between France as a European country and France as a uh, multicultural society um, with a, a significant uh, immigrant population. So um, universalism becomes a way of not having to say you're sorry for any of this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there are there are traces of it. There are certainly, I, I certainly wouldn't claim that France is the only place where aesthetics is put to this particular purpose. But I do think that the acknowledged French prowess in the arts, in culture, as as a as a place where culture is taken seriously and where whatever their other failings, they've 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 always been good um, at at cultural things um uh i think that it 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 makes um it makes this kind of discourse easier both to formulate and to um uh 
uh, and to, to propagate. Well, Dan, I've taken up a lot of your time, um, and I have one final question that I'd like to ask you, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I guess I'm at the, in the early stages of a project on archaeology, museums, and the concept of cultural property in France and its empire from the late 19th century to the present. Um, so I'm, it, it's, it, it, it both reflects some of the things I've been interested in over the whole course of my career and takes me in new directions as well. So, um, um, just, just so I don't get bored. <laughs> well, it sounds like an exciting project and I hope I'll have a chance to check in with you about it and perhaps interview about it. Um, that would be lovely. Soon. well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Dan, and, uh, Thank for writing the book. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to new books in French studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.